CityCast. I'm your host, Ananya Yadav, and today's episode is the eighth installment of the Resilient Cities series, which was developed by Daria Demirci, Henry Challen, Wendy Zhang, and myself as part of our Semester in Residence project. This is part two of our conversation with John Davey, who is the Environment and Climate Change Committee Chair for the North End Neighborhood Association. In this episode, John talks about the challenges of getting political support for climate change policies and dealing with difficult stakeholders. He shares his thoughts about the sustainability of the Pier 8 development and the importance of sustainable public transportation for all. Be sure to check out part one as well, where John talks about some of the greatest challenges facing Hamilton with regards to climate change and how North End residents are helping to make a positive difference in the community. Also, be sure to check us out on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at CityLabSIR, to stay up to date on all things related to the semester in residence. And now, without further ado, we'll tune into the conversation with John. Speaking of COVID, how has it impacted the work you're doing in the association? What have you had to change or put on stop because of it? Our environment committee is great. They, they get really involved. They organize garbage cleanups and whatnot down on the bayfront. And one of the things that got canceled right away, someone had planned a garbage cleanup. And then, you know, that week of the lockdown was announced. We had to cancel that garbage pickup. But, and then since then, everything, pretty much everything has moved online um, for the neighborhood association meetings, monthly meetings have all been online. So it's been challenging, but, you know, we've been dealing with, you know, like something like this, we might have done real time at McMaster down at City Lab, right? But we're doing it online and and that's the way it is for now. So hopefully in the, hopefully in the new year with the, with the vaccine, um, it'll, we'll be able to get back to, to normal. But I think it, it's been an interesting time because it has shown that just watching how City Hall has sort of, the counselors have all sort of, we need to go with the science on COVID and respond to how, with, with how doctors and scientists are telling us to respond. And they've all been discussing from the same papers and they haven't been politicizing it and really it really has shown in the response so it's to me it shows that if we apply the same sort of science-based approach to climate then we can actually achieve quite a bit if we can get past the sort of politicization of it when we've talked to other people like the answer is very clear for the most part what the city should do like invest in transportation connect the bike lanes create a sustainable development standard, this sort of stuff. It seems very obvious, but I I guess it is like the prioritization of these things that they're currently working on and just like the the funding. I know that there is $1 billion that is going towards the city since the cancellation of the LRT that should be used on transportation, but I don't think everyone has decided how exactly to spend that money. Um, Yeah, I, I do agree. Like, yeah, I think I, politicians will will see that as a you know they they have that a billion dollars and they we have to we have to spend it in, if we spend it in a climate context or the benefits of it go beyond the next voting or election day right so it's more difficult politically to convince politicians that we need to make decisions based upon past further down than four years further than eight years even so. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of the cities we've been talking to, that's been one of the key themes. And these are cities that have actually seen some success in getting their climate plans. And they always speak about having a political champion in council is such huge support. And I feel like we need in Hamilton to find a way to empower some of these climate leaders and also get somebody in our court in council itself. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a, I can think of at least two or three councillors that speak really well. When they speak about climate, it's like, you know, it's, they're, they're, they definitely know what they're talking about and they understand the urgency. So there are, there are councillors that are, um, that do understand it. It's, we just need more of them. Yeah, I liked how you, uh, like the parallels you uh, looked on between climate change and the current pandemic. And I feel like even more so with the pandemic, the fact that all the science was pointing to the fact that it was um, inevitable and then we still only reacted when it happened. I think that's another important lesson and uh, tool that we can take from it because I think if you apply the same logic to climate change, then people might be able to conceptualize even further the impact. Definitely. Yeah, that's an important point as well. Yeah. So I move on to another question. It kind of builds off what we were talking earlier, but uh, who are the most difficult uh, stakeholders or maybe the most important stakeholders that you have found uh, need to be contacted in your own community with uh, regards to climate change initiatives? Well, I think the, the most obvious is the industry, but I feel like there's a bit of a subconscious sort of apathy towards the industry because they've been there for so long. Basically, it feels like Hamilton, and to a large extent, I think it's true that Hamilton basically is built around the steel industry, right? It was a it was a steel town first and foremost, and we we are, be, became the city that we are or were based upon the existence of the steel industry. So there feels like it's sort of this huge immovable force there that it kind of um, it causes a bit of like cynicism or skepticism that we can ever do anything about it. And it, I feel like to a large extent that's, that's true when it comes to this, to the steel industry, a lot of what, uh, there's a, some exciting things that are happening in Sweden with the steel industries moving to hydrogen, but what are we gonna do as a neighborhood association to really affect that, right? We can't really, um, we can go outside with signs and stuff outside the factory, but I don't really see how that would do much. But the the other stakeholders, probably developers in the neighborhood and a combination of developers and the city, because I think what the city could do is make choices around our transportation system to incentivize developers that have more sustainable outlook on things when it comes to, you know, they maybe won't feel like they need as many parking spaces once they see that the city is investing in public transit and active transportation, safe active transportation network. Um, they won't need that sort of minimum parking. So then there won't be as many concerns from the neighborhood about the increased traffic and parking. So it's been difficult. You know, the city seems to want development, but they don't seem to be doing much to get rid of the sort of concerns about traffic and parking, which is always one of two of the three top concerns I've ever heard at every development meeting that I go to. So, and yeah, the developers themselves are kind of resistant because I think developing sustainably, um, incorporating geothermal or 
or uh, higher, you know, higher R value installation, just add costs to the development. So I think there needs to be some way of uh, subsidizing development to incorporate that from a carbon tax or something like that. I'm not sure how it could work, but definitely I think the city could incentivize green development by looking at transportation. Do you think West Harbor is developing in a satisfactory way when it comes to sustainability? I'm a little bit concerned um, that just what I see happening down there already, there's Pier 8, the streets have all been developed. They're all paved nicely, but there's no sidewalks yet. So there's no sort of established space for anyone but cars right off the, there's no buildings, there's no development happening there yet, but the, the scene is already set for um, mostly car-centric traffic. Right. Uh, so, and I'm a little bit like they're proposing this, an extra tall tower, I think 45 story tower on Pier 8, which will put a lot of the residents, I think what it does is it, it creates an environment where you can put more low rise family based dwelling there. But then at the same time, it's going to put a lot of the, a lot of the units and a lot of the cars into one corner of the, the pier. So that, you know, it seems like it's going to be more difficult to manage traffic because so much more of the cars are going to be coming from one area of the pier. So it, it just doesn't feel like something that they've fully thought out, but I might be wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. It's kind of interesting when you talk about the steel industry, because it kind of seems almost like a, a decent allegory for the problem of climate change, where it's a negative impact in the city. It's actively harming people, but the cost in terms of jobs and economic impact is so great that people don't really want to change anything. So maybe if that was something that we looked at further, it could help understand the problem. Yeah. Like I'm not familiar enough with the hydrogen technology, but I mean, if that is a possibility of switching to hydrogen rather than coal and coke, then, um, you know, I don't really see how that changes the job equation. Yeah. But I, I get your, I get what you're saying though, because we are a city built around the steel industry. So there's, even though the jobs are not what they used to be, like even, yeah, I think the, they've automated the system so much that even the, the jobs, even if they're running at full capacity, there's not as many jobs as there once was just because of automation. Mm -hmm. So going green or going sustainable doesn't necessarily mean the jobs just have mm -hmm. to go away. I just thought it was interesting because you spoke of the hydrogen technology and that's a lot of uh, the research we've been doing. And Canada actually has a lot of capacity and has some of the world's leaders in these companies that do research into uh, hydrogen fuel cells and things like that. So I think it's truly a missed opportunity and that's something we should be looking at because we do have such a capacity and speaking to the economic point that you spoke of too, I think we have a lot of room for growth there. Yeah, and especially considering hydrogen is a very energy expensive process of creating. So, and we have a lot of clean energy. We have nuclear, we have, we have hydro, and I think there's ways that we could probably, you know, supply the world's hydrogen in a pretty clean way. Because I think a lot of other areas, they have to use natural gas or, or coal to create the hydrogen, that process. So yeah, it ends up being in that, you don't, you don't get the gains that you would normally if you're able to create the hydrogen using clean electricity. So 
there's definitely, yeah, I think you're right that Canada has a lot of potential there for sure. And, and the steel industry is, I, I guess it's hard to let go of also because it's such a big heritage point for Hamilton, but it would be very interesting to see how it adapts to a uh, climate crisis. It's very hopeful yeah. that we can switch over to hydrogen and preserve the steel industry. Yeah, I think it needs to, right? Because we're going to need steel mm-hmm. regardless. So the technology kind of needs to change somehow. It, it's kind of funny because I just I did a quick Google search and it, it seems that the Ontario government is investing uh, over $22 million into ArcelorMittal. And it just seems like, like we talked about earlier, if you were working in climate change and you saw these kind of investments from the government, I could see that it would be uh, kind of discouraging because, yeah, just a quick thought. Yeah, I guess it depends on what those that funding is for, if it's maybe for research into that, but I don't it, know. From what I know about the Ford government, it doesn't seem like they would make that contingent upon investment into. Yeah, it seems to be for supply chain and manufacturing increasing. So I guess not the most uh, sustainable. Sounds but, like sounds like status quo to me. Yeah, nothing new there, I guess. I'll just move on because we have a couple more questions that we think are uh, important for this interview. So I guess I would, we kind of spoke about this earlier, but globally and in Hamilton, climate change impacts people very differently based on social inequality and access to resources. How do you personally see these two issues linked in the city being climate change and equity? Yeah, it's a tough one because it's hard to, you know, what we need, what needs to happen to the cost of fossil fuel, it needs to become more expensive because of the externalities that we've been ignoring historically, right? So it's going to become less affordable to use fossil fuels. So how how do we make sure that there's people that have access to energy in that environment, right? And to me, it feels like we're dedicating a lot of electricity capacity to this uh, idea that we can replace all our single occupied fossil fuel powered cars with electric cars. And in order to do that, in order to provide the same sort of uh, range security rather than range anxiety that people feel about electric cars, we're going to have to pack huge amounts of battery capacity into those cars. And then the, the grid needs to supply those batteries. And one of the things that I've discovered uh, from talking to various developers in the neighborhood is that they, they want to build charging stations into their new development, but what they're finding is that the grid can't handle the, the, the drain that would be caused if all these cars would be plugged into the, into the grid at the same time. So I think what actually needs to happen is that we need to start thinking about our vehicles in a much smaller context. Either if our personal vehicles, they need to be much smaller or we need to be packing our large batteries into public transit. So making electric buses and whatnot. So I think people need to either get used to getting around on electric bikes or very small electric cars and using public transit more because, you know, you see these, the Cy- Elon Musk Cybertruck is a huge vehicle. And if I, I think, I think they're going to pack about a 200 kilowatt hour battery into those things. And it's just, it's crazy. And to think about the way that we use vehicles now, I think the, the amount of trips that we actually take that are greater than 
100 kilometers is like less than 1% of all our total trips. So maybe there is a demand for those kind of cars for road trips and whatnot for, you know, for general urban people that live in urban areas. But for all their other trips around town, getting to the grocery store, the hardware store, maybe a light electric cargo bike might do the job, right? And they're powered by one kilowatt hour batteries. So you could power 200 bicycles with one Cybertruck battery, basically. So I think getting off a bit off topic there, but in order to make sure that there's enough supply, electricity, heating supply to everyone, we're going to have to use our electricity capacity wisely. So start using it for home heating and cooling. Summertime cooling is going to be more of a concern than wintertime heating almost in the future, right? So we're going to, we're going to need that electricity for people to actually live comfortably. We were actually looking into like a district cooling mechanism that Hamilton, Toronto is doing. So they're taking like they're taking deep lake water that's cold and they're harnessing that hydrothermal energy and then they're using that cold water to power ac in to cool down the, the air in buildings and I, I guess that's especially you know for all the condos that are right along the waterfront that's a real possible use of cooling for sure and i guess that's something that the pier 8 could leverage as well i didn't think of that that's a really good uh, it's a really good thought because we have the bay right there, so might as well use it. Yeah, I think definitely for equity in this city, it seems like we re- the transportation problem. I know they talked about it in the life-size city, but it definitely, being such a car-centric city, definitely impacts people very differently throughout the city. Yeah, and the other side of that is that when you make your transportation system dangerous for people using bicycles or for walking, you get into a situation where a car becomes almost an essential product to live, right? And I think I've seen the average cost of car ownership is like $8,000 a year, right? Which is crazy. If you can make people be able to get to work safely on a bicycle or by public transit, you increase their affordability. You keep their money in their pocket and spending money locally in shops and whatnot. So it, it can actually increase the people's affordability and boost the local economy as well, because they'll be spending that money elsewhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about it like that. And it seems like a no-brainer. Like if, if you're a politician, you're wanting to, um, you know, get people motivated to come out and vote, you know, you start talking in ways that can save you $9,000 a year and keep you fit. You save on uh, gym membership and whatnot. So I think it seems like a political winner. Yeah. But people do seem so, sort of historically bound culturally to the idea of car ownership as mm-hmm. like a, f- a source of freedom and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a hard thing to break. Mm-hmm. In Dundas and Flamborough, like water down other remote places, like area rating is like a big thing that is preventing public transport reform from happening like you just want to keep taxes down in those areas so they don't have to pay more to fund the transit system that would ultimately help them in the end but yeah yeah yeah. that's a big complex issue and i think it has to do with just the traditional resistance to anything other than single occupied car use so Mm -hmm. 
But it seems like transportation, public transportation, is the answer to things, or at least a good step in the right direction because it reduces emissions, improves equity in, within the city. Yeah, in North America, seems to be very unique in sort of seeing it as a. There seems to be like a class division between, you know, only poor people take public transit and wealthy people get around by in their car, but. That's not the way it is everywhere in many parts of Europe and Asia, right? It's be it's a it's a pretty common thing that every you'll see every class on public transit. Yeah, and if more money goes into making public transit nicer, I mean that would it's like cyclical, like it, yeah, yeah, because everyone associates being packed in like sardines and uncomfortable, and um, whereas in Europe they fund it so that people you know, have their own space, especially, in, you can understand in North America why COVID affected public transit so much, because it's so underfunded, mm-hmm. crowded, and people feel unsafe on it. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that was sort of a little bit disappointing. Hamilton didn't really do any sort of pop-up bike lanes or get a taste of sort of what possibilities could be could be realized if we went to something more cycling-centric, like a lot of cities like Toronto did they opened up a lot of pop-up lanes and I think some of them are going to be permanent. So, cause once, once people get, get a feel for what it's like, they actually start using it, enjoying it. And I think that maybe what there's a lot of resistance cause they're afraid they're going to be popular. Mm-hmm. And, and then they'll be like, Oh, now we have to keep it. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I know that Stockholm experimented with a, a car free downtown day in 2015. So that could even be something that Hamilton would try, but I feel like that would get a lot of resistance. Yeah, yeah we do we do it for like open streets and whatnot, and for mm-hmm. super crawl, and you know, obviously, it be- they become people's spaces, mm-hmm. and we do that because we can't imagine holding an art event all about culture and people with cars traveling through. You can't you can't even imagine that. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't. I just don't know why it's restricted to special events. Mm-hmm. Can you ever see a day when King Street is like close to cars and just pedestrians? Is that is that a future that you can envision? <laughs> I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Maybe so I, the LRT I think would be a yeah. pretty important part. Gets people. It, it just creates a spine, a transportation mm-hmm. spine through the through the city, and I think it will just it will change a lot, especially if they can incorporate cycling into that same sort of space so we are coming to the end of our session thank you so much for talking with us it was, that was great it was great no problem yeah i mean if anyone wants to learn more about our committee you can go to the, our website northendneighborhoods.com and you can sign yourself there's a form up on the right side to get on our mailing list or you can subscribe to our twitter account which is nina climate uh, at Nina Climate, all one word, or you can email us at nina.climate at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us on CityCast, and we'll see you soon with another episode.